What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite mythology, history, philosophy, podcasty, pop culture you name it, we analyze and discuss and disseminate and talk about it podcast. I am, as always, Midnight Myth listeners, very excited to be back here with another episode of the Midnight Myth, in particular now that we are close to the 5th of November. I feel that... In the holiday episodes that we have done, there has been a holiday that we have forgotten. And because that we have forgotten this holiday and what it means and what it represents, it's time for us to rectify this incredible injustice that is verily, verbosely, verifiably, uh, victoriously, voxively, V for Vendetta-y. And we are here to do a V for Vendetta episode, which you all know, you've been following us on Twitter, and so we've been dropping this. Tonight, Laurel and I are going to discuss V for Vendetta, everyone's favorite movie where the terrorists are the good guys movie from the early 2000s. Can't wait to talk about it. Really stoked. Laurel, how you feeling? I'm feeling great. Uh, this is a movie that I have loved since I was a teenager. Since it came out, it spoke to me in ways I was not expecting and still does today. Uh, it's something that I can go back to and cherish. I love the characters. I love just the sheer visual spectacle of it. I love that it sends goosebumps uh, up and down my flesh as I watch this movie. It just is so meaningful, so powerful, and maintains its power today. Uh, there's so much to talk about, so uh, I'm excited to be going over this with you. It feels like we should have done this a long time ago. It feels like right up our alley, uh, and so I'm glad we're finally here. Yeah, yeah. So it stars uh, Hugo Weaving as V and Natalie Portman as Evie. Hugo Weaving in the 90s, early 2000s was like the go-to guy for anything nerdy and awesome because he had just done The Matrix. He had done Lord of the Rings as Elrond, and then he comes out with this, I would argue, best possible performance I've seen of him in film. Oh, it's extraordinary, I mean, and we never see his face. Like, I, I mean, I'm, let me back that up. He's awesome in everything he does. So I've never seen Hugo Weaving and been like, well, that's not good. So I think he's amazing. But to me, this is the movie... I most think of Hugo Weaving when I think of Hugo Weaving um, because I think that performance as V is so unbelievably iconic. 
there's a ton to get to. The movie came out in, as I said, 2006. It's been out for a while, but consider this your spoiler wall. But if you haven't watched V for Vendetta at this point, you know, what are you doing wrong? It's on Netflix right now. Yeah, it's on Netflix, so you can pop it in anytime you want. Uh, we were very happy to see that because this movie uh, more than ever needs to be watched and needs to be revisited. Oh, yeah, totally. I 100% agree with that. Now, it is based off of a comic book series in the 80s by Alan Moore, which is crazy how often when we talk about comic-related adaptations, it's almost always an Alan Moore this is, adaptation. This is the third podcast that we're doing based on an Alan Moore adaptation uh, and the second in two weeks. So we did Watchmen two weeks ago. Um, it, it's exciting to revisit the body of work of this artist because I think both of us have a kind of complicated relationship to him. This is uh, the adaptation of an Alan Moore work that I have the least complicated relationship to, but it's still something I'm interested in interrogating, uh, even though he took his name off of it. Which is pretty Alan Moore of Alan Moore. He takes his yeah. name off of everything that's Absolutely. adapted of his. So that's not uncommon. Um, and then, but we're going to focus this conversation 100% on the movie adaptation. Yeah. We're not going to talk about the comic or very, very little. That being said, if uh, you folks out there listening would like to hear us talk about the comic, we certainly can. The reason we're choosing the movie is pretty simple. The movie is where we're both familiar with. I read the comic years ago, but it's been a long time. I don't remember, Laurel, You have you read the comic? I have not read the comic. And the movie to me is my V Vendetta experience. That being said, if you're listening and, and think, hey, you're doing injustice because you should talk about the comic, hit us up. Tell us why. We would love to dialogue with you about that very subject. Which speaking of, before we get too deep into this, I know there's a lot of Midnight Myth news. I know there's a lot of Midnight Myth social media activity. So Laurel, do our little why Midnight Myth is awesome and you should give us money spiel. Oh my God. And, and if you can't give us money, give us likes and retweets spiel. Oh, wow. Well, you just wrapped it up so beautifully. Um, if you want to get in touch with us or you want to offer us any feedback, give us any suggestions on future episodes, whatever, uh, just talk to us and tell us what kind of day you're having. The best place to do so is Twitter. We are at The Midnight Myth on Twitter, and we would love to hear from you. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. Or you can head over to our website, www.midnightmyth.com for extra content. There is a blog there that we update as regularly as possible. Uh, and there are links to some other important resources for Midnight Myth news and updates. You can sign up for our email list there. We won't email you any more than once a month. And you can also uh, find our merch store through there. So if you go to that website and click shop, it'll take you to our store where you can purchase Midnight Myth and Wheel of Ka. Uh, items. So Wheel of Caught is our Dark Tower side podcast, and we have tons of tees, totes, sweatshirts, anything you can possibly imagine for both of those podcasts. Also on our website, there's a link to our Patreon. This is a place where you can support us for a small monthly donation, and that monthly donation will get you some extra perks, whether those are bonus episodes or discounts on merch. We love to show our appreciation and we would love your support. It helps us cover our costs here on the podcast. In fact, we lose money on the podcast and it would be nice to break even. So if you support us any way you can, that would help us hit that break even point, which would encourage us to do more. And uh, for those fellow travelers on the path of the beam, Song of Susanna is up next. So I'm really excited for Wheel of Cop fans 
to talk about that book, which will probably be end of November as our target, uh, maybe with uh, the Thanksgiving holiday, potentially first week of December. Yeah, um, the latest episode of The Wheel of Ka was the wrap-up of Wolves of the Kala, and I think you guys are doing extraordinary work there, uh, reading through The Dark Tower. If you've been looking to get into Stephen King, uh, or you are a Stephen King fan and you want to share that with somebody, Derek and Steve have some really amazing insights, and they also love to hear your feedback on Twitter and elsewhere. Um, a couple of news items. Uh, we have been talking for a couple of weeks about our partnership with uh, the Pop Venture family on YouTube. In just the next couple of weeks, we're going to give you the information for how to enter that giveaway for a Star Wars Funko Pop giveaway. Uh, it's going to be a giveaway of probably about a $50 value of uh, Star Wars themed Funko and uh, Midnight Myth merch. So this should be a lot of fun and stay tuned for that. You know what's awesome about that? Just to tease a yeah. little more, like listeners, you don't have to do anything except for just like click and like and subscribe and we're going to give you something for fucking free. Yeah. <laughs> How awesome is that? Free Funko Pops Midnight Myth merch. That's coming in the pipeline. It's in the spirit of the holidays about to start. You know, let's give something away. All right. So I think that hits everything in terms of news and items. Or did we leave something out? Well, I just wanted to say uh, next week, we have been talking about this for a while as well, but we are finally going to be releasing our conversation with M from Verbal Diorama. And uh, this is the first place you're going to hear it, but we are going to be talking about a movie that means a lot to all of us, and that movie is Labyrinth. Uh, so we cannot wait to share that conversation with you. It's going to be really wonderful. Uh, we're also doing a guest spot coming up. I don't know if that's public yet, but we'll be guesting on another podcast very shortly, and I can't wait to share with you what that is going to be. It's going to be a really fun experience for us. I know, right? We are, we are having our first guest podcaster yeah. on and then we're going to a different podcast to be guest hosts. So a lot of fun, awesome stuff. And, you know, I don't say this enough. Midnight Myth listeners, you're the best podcast listeners. Without you, we wouldn't do this. So just thank you from my bottom of my heart. Now go buy some fucking merch. Oh, my <laughs> no, God. No, I'm kidding. Derek. <laughs> I'm kidding. He's really salty tonight. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm totally kidding. <laughs> I'm joking. No, I'm not. Buy some merch. <laughs> oh, my God. All right. Let's talk V for Vendetta. All right. Yeah. Um. Should I do a recap? Do you think that's cool? Do you think... Uh, I think that would be great. It's been a while since the movie came out. Just sort of high-level bullet points so everybody is caught up. The movie features a terrorist by the name of V who escaped from a government facility where he was a prisoner being tested on for medical experiments to develop a biological weapon. In the process of this, his cellular composition mutated, and he has some low-level superpowers such as, you know, he's incredibly fast and strong with good reflexes, etc. He wears the mask of a character named, or a person, pardon me, from history named Guy Fox, who on the 5th of November attempted to blow up Parliament. The movie starts with V interacting with the character Evie, a young woman who works at the British TV network, who's caught late after curfew in a futuristic English society that's fallen under the fascist control of a conservative party run by Chancellor Adam Sutler. And he has instituted uh, anti-homosexuality, anti-Muslim, and essentially anyone who disagrees with the government is going to be put into black bags by these characters called Fingermen, who are essentially the secret police of this sort of militarized, um, undemocratized 
autocracy that is England. A lot transpires. It starts with V blowing up a building in London called the Bailey. From there, things start to precipitate very quickly as Evie and V find themselves sort of locked in this um, dance where they are always end up together. Long story short, a lot of things happen. There's a great character named Finch who's a high-level police officer who's tasked with trying to figure out who V is and stop him. And in the process of researching V's past, comes to learn that a deadly biological attack on British citizens was orchestrated by the highest members of the conservative fascist government of England in order to institute a, a principle of fear and control by manipulating individuals in the media. The uh, Chancellor Suttler uses this to become the full-on military dictator of England, and as Finch is learning about this, we see V's plan to sort of in an anarchistic style upend and create a revolution in England he does things like he knocks off all of the top party members who started this conspiracy to poison their own people with biological weapons. And then it uh, culminates into him giving V masks to everybody in London and ultimately boils to the point where V's revolution meets head on with Sutler. Sutler ends up dead. V ends up himself being shot to death by a character named Creedy, who's sort of like the Gestapo leader of the military wing. He kills all of the top leaders. This is V. V himself dies. He, oh, I forgot. He, there's so much to this movie. Oh my God, yeah. He falsely imprisons Evie to teach her what it's like to be in a government torture camp in an attempt to purge her of her fear. And um, ultimately, Evie and V come together V dies. He tells Evie that he loves her. At the same time, Finch finds Evie underground in a subway tunnel, and Evie decides to hit the switch, so the bombs in the subway go to Parliament. Parliament, exactly at midnight on the 5th of November, explodes with all of the heads of state gone. The military autocracy, without orders, doesn't know what to do as a flood of people in V's masks go and witness the destruction of Parliament End of movie. That was the best I can do with all the shit that happens in this movie. Q1812 Overture by Tchaikovsky. Wonderful. Thank you for taking on that monumental task of recapping all of the incredible things that happen in this movie. Um, obviously, it is a lot. There is a lot of intricacy. It's a mystery. It is a, a political thriller. It is so many things all at once, and there's a lot of detail that has to be encapsulated there. So I salute you. My hat is off to you, sir. Why, thank you. So where should we begin in the discussion of this movie? Where do we start? I mean, literally, there are so many different angles and ways that we could interpret and evaluate and discuss V for Vendetta. Um, I turn this over to you. Where do you think we should begin? I tend to think that we should begin where the movie begins. Uh, and that is remembering the 5th of November. I think we should start with a little bit of historical context around what the gunpowder plot was because it provides this sort of baseline and this symbolic inspiration for the events of the movie. Would that sound all right to you? In fact, nothing would make me happier to start with who Guy Fox was and how he ultimately inspires the character V. So take it over. Yeah, so the, the movie opens... Uh, on a dark screen with voiceover of Natalie Portman's character, Evie Hammond, reciting a poem uh, where she says, Remember, remember the 5th of November, the gunpowder treason and plot. I know of no reason the gunpowder treason should ever be forgot. 
This poem commemorates uh, November the 5th, 1605, when a group of disgruntled Catholics who were disappointed with the king, King James I, uh, and his lack of religious tolerance, planned to assassinate him and his government by blowing up the House of Lords in the English Parliament. Now, Guy Fawkes has really become uh, the symbol of this, and even today, as it's commemorated on Bonfire Night, people burn um, effigies of Guy Fawkes, but he wasn't the leader of the organization that tried to perpetrate this. The leader was a guy named Robert Catesby, and Guy Fox was just the guy in the cellar with the match. He had a military background, so he was going to be the one to actually light the barrels of gunpowder. But he's obviously gone on to take on this greater significance. Yeah, and I think it's worth understanding what the main like gripe was. In the 17th century England, you have the king, King James. He's a Scottish king, and he is a proponent of religious reform. In, in particular, he, had, he believed in keeping England out of the Catholic Church. To back this up a few centuries, the Middle Ages is defined by a few key characteristics. One of them is that the belief of God is supreme. There are no agnostics and atheists in medieval Europe. And if you are one of those, you better keep it to yourself because you're going to get killed for expressing those beliefs. So even if anyone felt that way, we have no record of it because they kept it to themselves. If you were a pagan, you kept it to yourself because you were going to get killed for those beliefs. So the belief in God was supreme. Out of that fundamental belief came a few different questions about political, moral, and artistic authority, which is where does that authority come from? It, it ultimately, everyone agrees, comes from God, but what's the best way to channel God's authority? Does it come through God's church, through the Catholic Church, and is the Pope the leader of Christian Europe? And ultimately, should all authority rest on the Catholic Church? Or does it come from secular authority? Does it come from the kings? Are the kings ultimately going to be the people that arbiter right and wrong? In theory, in practice, in philosophy, the um, you know the actual spiritual authority should be the the higher authority. After all, the Pope has a direct line from God. In practice, the secular authority well that has all of the army, that has all of the bureaucracy, and oftentimes has most of the money as it's collecting direct taxes. So there's a conflict between where this authority resides. This conflict comes to a head after the Protestant Reformation where Martin Luther wants to reform the church and splinterings off different groups, but in particular in medieval England with King Henry VIII, who breaks England from the Catholic Church because he wants to divorce his wife and they won't permit it, and he forms the Church of England, supplanting England's kind of claim on that debate, saying that secular authority is the supreme authority, and that authority goes from God to the English king and then down, Right? This is a world in which King James lives in. And this is pretty good if you're the king because it goes God, then you, and there's no other question, and you, can't, you answer only to God. However, here's the problem. Medieval England had a lot of Catholics. Yeah. And to those Catholics, this was upending the divine order. Hence, we have the gunpowder plot. The gunpowder plot is instituted by Catholics hoping to kill the Scottish king, that was their target in the assassination, so that a Catholic monarch can come in and reinstitute England as a Catholic society and reintegrate it into Catholic Europe. 
that's sort of the historical context that's going on there. So a few a few things when we're adopting Guy Fox as our you know modern anarchist, keep in mind he wanted them he wanted England to be a Catholic society and a medieval Catholic society, which is by no means pluralistic or free or you know having the social mobility we know today, which is just a fun little historical irony. And the other thing just to keep in mind too is that there's a fundamental question out of medieval politics, which is where does authority reside? whose authority is supreme. And ultimately, it always came back to the power of the kings, because after all, the kings had the muscle. Now, at times this waxed and waned, but in medieval England, especially in the late Middle Ages with Henry VIII fracturing and pulling England out of the Catholic um, authority, they have officially said it is secular authority is the second highest authority under God, and this ruffled all of the English Catholics' feathers. Yeah, and think about this too with King James. We're only a couple of generations removed from that. Uh, he is, uh, Queen Elizabeth died without an heir, so King James, the Scottish king, was named. And so we've still got a significant amount of unrest based around something that is a relatively recent change uh, in in the country. So it is, uh, it's, it's like there's this new world order that we're still trying to adjust to, which is kind of what we're seeing in the dystopia, the landscape that we're, uh, we're watching in V for Vendetta. We're watching people who remember a different time and know there's something wrong, know that they're not free, uh, but don't know how to do anything about it. And that's where V comes along and says, well, we got to blow up this building. Much like Robert Catesby said, we got to blow up this building. You know, it's interesting for comparing, you know, Guy Fawkes' targets and that conspiracy's targets to V's. V's is targeting the buildings simply because they are the buildings. He does them at night, presumably where there are little, yeah. little people involved. It's not about murdering someone. Guy Fawkes and his, you know, group of cohorts, they were targeting a king that they wanted to assassinate so that a new king could take the throne and they could reintegrate medieval England back under Catholic authority and Catholic sway. Very fundamentally different. If you are to put yourself in the mindset of our um, you know, hero V, why do you think he chooses Guy Fawkes as his hero and his mask? That's well, that's a great question. I, I hadn't really thought about that, but as you're saying it, it seems like a, the natural question to ask. I think... Uh, in large part, it's because he was the man holding the match and because English society decided to brand him the face of that treason. Uh, because bonfires are lit, burning effigies of Guy Fawkes on the 5th of November as this, you know, longstanding tradition, it's also, uh, you know, a great and recognizable symbol to associate with his revolution. So even though, you know, he's not, He's not selecting the leader of this organization. Nobody would recognize a Robert Catesby mask. It's important to have something that people can associate with, uh, whether that is uh, a stylized face or a, a nursery rhyme that reminds you of uh, the kind of anxious and rebellious energy that is linked to the foundation of your modern world. So you think, if I understand that correctly, that that's mostly because of its utility, because Guy Fox is useful. It's a symbol that's recognized. It's associated with blowing up buildings. It's associated with rebellion. So you think it's, it's about its usefulness 
because if he had a mask of a different person in the plot that no one knew, they wouldn't recognize it. Hence, the mask would be less effective. He's also, you know, he's the one who who actually lit the, or wanted to light the barrels on fire. So it's almost like the fulfillment of this, uh, this baton that was never handed off. The actual person on the ground, not the conspirator in the back, but the person who is actually on the ground making the change becomes the symbol rather than, you know, just a, a, a high level removed uh, conspirator. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah, no, it, it makes complete sense. But I think it, I think that is one level. Yeah, to understand I would it. love to hear your take. Well, because I think um, if we understand the character V as anything, if I think if you asked V, what are you most? He wouldn't say a terrorist. He'd say an artist. Yeah. So to me, it, it bears like, what is the artistic symbolism of Guy Fox? And, and then I would, I think you can understand on the artistic and also on the political. So on the artistic side, I think he chooses the mask one because it's terrifying to look at. Yeah, for Be- sure. But familiar. It has this like, like mixture of both fear and mixture of familiarity, not quite human. It's almost like it's a clown. I think it adds to the sort of thematic and sort of performative aspect of V. That V is in a play, and he is an actor in that play, right? So I think it's partly because of the aesthetics around it. And I think you're right. The person who lights the match, I think there is a spiritual connection to be like, you almost lit this match. You realize that at one point, you have to burn the fucker down to rebuild, now it's my turn to burn the fucker down. And I think you're also right. Like whoever helps me out, whoever surrounds me, it's ultimately the, you know, it's ultimately the person who pulls the trigger that's remembered. Right. Politically, I think while the question of what authority is supreme, secular or spiritual was running through the uh, political conflicts of Guy Fox in the 17th century, I think this movie is asking a similar political question, but not over the secular versus non-secular, because even though Adam Sutler and the conservative movement movement are religious, their political power is not based on religion. They never say, we should be in charge because God put us here. We don't hear that. We hear, hey, God punishes the wicked in Prothero's first you know, speech being like, you know what it was? God punished America. Yeah, godlessness. It was their godlessness. God, it was divine retribution. We got we got through this because we still love God, but not God's the reason we have the state. Very, like, I'm, I know that sounds a little rhetorical, but it's an important distinction. So the conflict, I would say, is where does authority reside? Is it in the military or is it through the consent and will of the governed? In, in other words, is it, authority by force or by civilian mandate. I think that's the political conflict that V is in with Adam Sutler, where Sutler is like, it's about might makes right. Yeah. I have the the ability to, and the power. I'm going to take as much power as I can. And anyone who disagrees with me is going to be imprisoned, tortured, and killed. Where V is just like, no, power comes from the consent of the governed. That's the only way that power comes from. And when you suppress that, the only natural outgrowth is revolution because the people no longer consent. And as soon as the people revoke the consent, your authority, your might means nothing. 
Yeah. Oh, that's great. I want to, I, I want to circle back to this because I want to revisit some more of the uh, political philosophy for sure, because I think it's at the core of this movie, but I want to revisit something that you said as we were talking about the mask and that's uh, about the performative quality of it. And I think that's at the heart of why this movie blew me away so much when I first saw it in 2006 uh, and why I still am super drawn to it is that it is supremely theatrical. You know, one of the first images on screen um, is this dual mirror of V and Evie both preparing for their evenings, one putting on a mask, the other one putting on makeup, very much as two actors would do. Later on, we see V deliver an address in front of a red curtain. We see him conduct a concerto on the street before he's about to blow up the Bailey. We see V and Evie quote Shakespeare at each other and mention uh, that Evie played Viola in Twelfth Night. So there are some very clear uh, allusions to theater and, and Evie works, where does she work? Yeah, she works in television. Uh, and she's constantly running through these dressing rooms of women dressed up like they're in um, Ziegfeld Follies. But between the two of them, the acts of uh, terrorism and revolution that they carry out are performative in quality as well. So she will often have to put on costumes or he will don costumes or disguises in order to uh, you know, offer some information to other characters. So very much it's like we're watching a play. And I think that works on a lot of levels here. And I think one of the levels that it works on is tied deeply to the gunpowder plot. So I mentioned Robert Catesby, who was the mastermind behind the gunpowder plot. And his father, William, was friends with a guy named John Shakespeare. John Shakespeare was the father of William Shakespeare. You've probably heard of him. You may have seen one or two of his plays. But the families were both Catholic to varying degrees of practice. And much later, there were correspondences found in the Shakespeare home that John had been hiding between him and William Catesby, where they were exchanging illegal outlawed Catholic texts. So it's not crazy to imagine that the Shakespeare family might have been uh, concerned or anxious, to say the least, they might be the next ones to find themselves on trial for high treason after the gunpowder plot was foiled. Oh, so, wow. Yeah, so there are some very wow. deep connections between uh, Shakespeare and the powder plot. And Hold Shakespeare. Let me, let me just make sure I understand. I, I'm sorry to interrupt. Shakespeare's father was best friends with one of the main conspirators of the gunpowder plot. One of his, the, so his father. The, Shakespeare's their, father. Yeah, Shakespeare's father was friends with Robert Catesby's father. Okay, and Robert Catesby was... Was the architect of the gunpowder plot. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay, so there is a gunpowder plot. What's that? One, two, three, like four degrees of separation. <laughs> right, yeah. So it's very close to the family. Um, and Shakespeare is essentially a court playwright. You know, he writes at commission of the of Queen Elizabeth. He writes at commission of King James. He writes things that... Uh, attempt to impress and or flatter them. And this is when he writes one of his most famous plays, and it's the only play he ever wrote set in Scotland. That play, also known as the Scottish play, is Macbeth. It was almost certainly first produced in 1605 or 1606, so shortly after the gunpowder plot was supposed to be carried out. 
And there are a couple of very specific, very explicit references or Easter eggs to the gunpowder plot within the story. But at its heart, it's a play about a guy who commits high treason against the king. Uh, The King Duncan of Scotland is portrayed as this perfect, benevolent, good man who once he is killed, uh, the entire natural world falls into disarray and chaos. And it's very much, you know, there's a reading of this that says, this is Shakespeare attempting to flatter James and say that an attempt to assassinate you is an attempt to assassinate this divinely ordained ruler. And that that would have been such an egregious crime that it would have thrown the entire world into chaos and anarchy. And this kind of mindset, while you can interpret that as Shakespeare trying to, uh, you know, get in good with the king in case uh, his number came up, it's also, I think, uh, a lie that is used by the government in V for Vendetta that says the, uh, the threat of godlessness or leaderlessness is a bigger threat than losing your freedoms to an authoritarian state. Yeah, I totally see what you're saying there. There is a element, you know, it's interesting talking about the Shakespeare connection, especially in reference to how Shakespeare as a piece of media operated, at least in part, as state propaganda. And how much the character V quotes Shakespeare throughout the movie. In in particular, Macbeth. Um, but quote Shakespeare continuously throughout the movie, in particular of Macbeth, it, it's an interesting dynamic because one of the ways that we can understand what this uh, this movie is saying about power, in particular, is about power is in part about messaging and how you get your message out. And when the state is dictating directly to the media what to say and how to say it, they're able to coordinate a message that Adam Sutler is not subtle about it. He says, we want everyone to know why they need us. And then we see a media disinformation campaign designed to frighten and scare. And when you can control what the message is about power coming from power, you can tweak the narrative. When V blows up the Bailey in the very beginning of the movie, they're like, this is not a problem. We'll just call this an emergency demolition with impromptu fireworks and music. Yeah, they just wanted to give the old girl a grand send-off. And that'll be that. And then we'll go and we will, you know, and then we'll catch the terrorist. And no one will even know that it was a terrorist plot. We'll control and contain this narrative. And the idea being that if a terrorist can get away with this, we're not as powerful as we want people to believe. So that's not what happened. V, recognizing that part of this revolution is about battling for control of the media, what does he do? He turns around and makes a counter-argument. And that counter-argument is one about the information warfare he's engaging in. He militarily, mightily, and viciously seizes control of a uh, the BTN network through the, the threat of force with a bomb, and he plays his own counter-message. And in that counter message, he ultimately comes to one conclusion. Power's coming from you. If we want to ask ourselves why our country's so fucked up and why fascists are controlling it, look in the mirror. You know, and he doesn't do it in a way that's just like, you're an asshole. He's like, I understand. I get it. I get it. War, terrorism, 
biological viruses wiping out, you know, 80,000 people, these, all these things corrupted your reason. And in came Sutler to say, just give me your freedom and I'll be able to make you feel safe and whole again. And you made that bargain, but ultimately it's up to you to change that. Yeah. And I think, and it's interesting how we see the messaging from both the Sutler and the V side and how they recognize that, that part of this battle is a media oriented and driven battle. And that to me is a political message that today we're actively engaging in. And it's not necessarily through television as much as it is in V for Vendetta, but through social media and that we're now engaged in all out information warfare where different political camps are doing everything they can to get their message out there and to get it saturated. And I think that's an interesting thing to harken back to your point that Shakespeare was at least in part a propaganda apparatus for the state, maybe to ingratiate themselves to King James so that King James wouldn't think Shakespeare was a conspirator. But in either way, propagating the message of the king as the ultimate authority and the ultimate goodness in authority with V directly quoting that play. Yeah. You know, as a line of dialogue that he finds artistic merit into it, waging his own information warfare, saying that authority is essentially based upon the consent of the governed, and it is Adam Sutler who has corrupted that authority by taking your consent away. Yeah, well, and he's arguing that it's a matter of where you put your faith, too. So the world of V for Vendetta, and arguably the world that we live in today, has put our faith in a particular world order, in a particular status quo that says, the leader is the person who protects me, who makes decisions for my country, the people that I elect are the ones who make decisions on my behalf, and I do not have individual power. Uh, but V is saying you can also put your faith in what I perceive as the truth, which is that you are the ones with the actual power. They are only, uh, you know, these figureheads or these facsimiles of power, and it only requires your action and your uh, your revolutionary will to make make the other thing true, to make the other thing the reality. Yeah, interesting. You know, in preparation for this podcast. We're fortunate enough to have a really good friend, uh, Professor Flavio Hickel at the uh, University of Delaware, who is a political scientist. And one thought that we had was like, you know, what would a political scientist say about this movie? And he spent about, you know, 45 minutes or so with us. And we just did a, an interview understanding if you're a political scientist, how do you feel about this movie? And one of his reflections on it was that there is a politically speaking a danger in over-romanticization of anarchy. That where the movie lands is that V is an anarchist who says, just remove the people in power and then let everything fall where they may and things will work out. And his argument was that, you know, listen, revolutionary change can sometimes be absolutely necessary. And sometimes you have to burn down the old regime to build a new one but you need units and structures and well-thought-out plans of what will come next. Otherwise, you create a scenario where there's a power vacuum, and in that power vacuum will step invariably someone that was already close to the current regime who could potentially be worse than the regime you're trying to supplant. And I can think of a historical example yeah. that, that he was talking about that really resonated. I mean, this goes back to, shocker, Roman history. Yeah, believe it or not. <laughs> so Caesar had made himself the dictator of Rome in perpetuity. 
essentially saying he was the supreme leader of the Roman Empire and there would be no other leader until his death. And a group of Roman aristocrats who wanted to reinstitute, reinstitute the Republic decided to take it upon themselves to assassinate him during the Ides of March, led by his friend, potentially rumored son, Brutus. And they stabbed Caesar to death on the floors of the Senate. Fun fact, Laurel and I have been at the center house where Caesar has, was stabbed to death. It is now a feral cast sanctuary. It's pretty awesome. And a ruin. Long story short, the Republicans who killed, and I say that not in the American Democrat Republicans, but the ancient Roman Republicans yeah. who killed Caesar did not have a transition plan. They assumed if they cut off the head of the snake of the Roman dictator, the Republic would just resume and just return. What happened in that power vacuum is three people seized full control. That was um, Octavian, later Caesar Augustus, Mark Anthony, and Lepidus, three very powerful, influential, and rich Roman generals. And the three of them ruled until eventually they went to civil war and at the end, Octavius renamed the great one. Augustus became the sole leader of Rome, and Rome became an imperial monarchy henceforth. I bring up that example when I think of the actual political machinations of this movie because the violent revolutionary change of killing the dictator in public failed because there was no actual plan beyond doing that. It was just kill Caesar and we'll be a republic again as if the only reason Rome had a dictator was Caesar, and that there wasn't a huge other slet of reasons that led to one-man rule before Caesar that might right. also still be there after Caesar. Yeah. And one of the critiques that Flavio had this movie is like, hey, why did England in this world become a military autocracy to begin with and just removing the high chancellor and Creedy and all the other high party members does that mean that it suddenly stops all the conditions that led it to that just suddenly stop? And I do think there is a danger when we reflect on this movie and, hey, how do we fix our own broken politics to think, oh, all we need to do is get rid of the snake at the top. You know, whether that snake to you is Nancy Pelosi or Donald Trump, you know, depending upon your, you know, the way you look at it and it's Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> it's Donald Trump. <laughs> if you just remove Trump, suddenly all the conditions that led to Trump are still there. Yeah. So, you know, and I do think there, that's an interesting meditation on it. And I really also wanted to thank Professor Hickel for taking the time out of his busy schedule to talk to us about a piece of fiction. Yeah. So that's really cool. And yeah. if, you're, if you're in Delaware and want to take a class, uh, enroll in the University of Delaware for Professor, Professor Hickel's class. We're not being sponsored by the University of Delaware. No, um, yeah. No, no I, affiliation. I, and those are great points. And this movie very much, um, at least in my interpretation of it, is a symbolic meditation on, on revolution. Um, so I don't think this movie is at all trying to say, like, if you blow up a building, you can actually change the landscape of government in a world power. Uh, I think it's very much relying on, you know, the building as a symbol. If you give faith in a symbol, it's very much this uh, this story that's telling you to find something deeper within yourself and within your community in order to affect change. But I think that is a super valid critique of this film and of anarchism in general. There's a reason all uh, dystopian fiction is, you know, worlds that thought they were going to be utopias. There's a reason it's 
it's the same kind of, it's two sides of one coin. You want this ideal place and it usually ends up being a disaster. Yeah, one envision of hope that I had watching this movie this time around and thinking about, we had just had the conversation with Professor Hickel about the danger of romanticizing anarchism. And then we watched the movie right after that conversation. And I'm watching it. There's the scene where the character, um, Inspector Finch, goes to Lock Hill, Lark Hill, pardon me, comes back and he just starts talking about like this feeling as if he has seen this greater puzzle. And suddenly he's standing in the middle and he knows how it began and he knows how it's going to end. And as he's giving this speech about this feeling, the director is showing us images. And there is a split second image where you see Evie with all of her hair, tending to some flowers in a London flat. And in the mirror, you see Professor Finch, not Professor Finch, Inspector Inspector Finch, Finch, pardon me, drinking a glass of scotch. And I thought to myself, if he has seen all of these different pieces, or rather, if his feeling is correct that there's a broader narrative playing out here that is sort of locked in place by God or fate or whatever, and we're seeing this glimpse that maybe this is that, that scene's from the future. And it's interesting that the movie ends with Finch and Evie, and that perchance that there is a union structurally between the military apparatus of Finch who's the only one left in the government that's not killed, who was at the highest level, and Evie, who's now presumably the leader of the revolution, who takes up the mantle where V left off, that perchance that they find a way in the middle to come together, and at the very least, if they can build a beautiful London flat, maybe together they can build a functioning, self-determinative liberal democracy. Yeah, you know, it is a split second, but it is a really interesting uh, thing for the movie to have thrown in at us, especially because that montage is described as Finch by just a feeling, but we know that certain things that uh, play in those flashes of images do come true. We saw the fertilizer in the train. We saw, you know, the the train barreling towards Parliament. So we know the girl with the glasses being shot by a fingerman. Yes, we know that these things can come true. Um, I also love that split second moment because I think it's a, a visual reminder of the Valerie story. Uh, it very much echoes the image of. Uh, Ruth tending to roses in her flat that she shared with Valerie when they were together. And so there's this very interesting repetition of history, very much like, you know, the the repetition of the gunpowder plot. We also have the repetition of this great uh, capacity for love and compassion that exists in this world too. So that's another, you know, aspect of hope. That brings me really into one of the major tensions that I find in this film that I think Uh, makes it so emotionally satisfying. And that's uh, this conflict between the personal vendetta and the, uh, you know, greater universal revolution. I think that's very much one of the big themes that's working through the characters in this film. Uh, V in particular, uh, it stands for vendetta. V is for vendetta. Uh, As the movie begins, we see a man who has been transformed into a monster who has been severely wronged by this government, but he's been severely wronged by several individuals in particular, and he is taking out his vengeance on those individuals. While he may wear this mask of Guy Fawkes and say that he wants to ignite a revolution, the most important thing to him, at least for the first part of this film, 
is getting back at the people who did this to him. That's not to say that there's anything um, wrong about that, that they don't deserve it. They do. But it does feel like uh, a slightly shallower version of the revolution that he claims to want to lead. And I think his arc is toward embracing uh, the actual selfless sacrifice required for such a revolution. Uh, and this very much echoes the piece of art that he loves the most, the movie that he keeps showing to Evie, which is The Count of Monte Cristo. And The Count of Monte Cristo is the quintessential story of revenge, the quintessential story of personal vendetta. Uh, you know, even at the end, Evie remarks, uh, when she's asked who he really was, she says he was Edmond Dantes, referring to the title character of the Count of Monte Cristo, who disguised himself in order to exact his revenge many years later on the people who had wronged him. But I think we, we watch this character through his relationship with Evie in particular, um, go from just wanting to kill the people who hurt him the most to actually feeling like he can let go uh, of the personal connection to everything that happened in his past and actually pass that baton and say, Evie, you actually have the ability to pull this lever. You are the one who can take this revolution to the next step because you have a deeper political connection to it. You have less of a, um, of, of a deep burning personal vengeance. You have this ability to truly lead the revolution where I have been tied down by my selfishness. What he says to her at the end of that movie was like, you were right about me. In other words, I am a monster. Yeah. And at the end of the day, what I've done, I leave to you to decide where it goes next. I don't trust myself to make this decision because you've pointed out correctly that I'm a monster. I've built it up to this point and now it's up to you to decide. And I trust you. And the reason I trust you, Evie, is because of love. Because I love you, I also trust you. That, in his last words, that's the most beautiful thing you could have given me. And, you know, because he feels this love to Evie, because Evie has correctly pointed out how monstrous this world has made him, how much he's embraced his role as a monster in this grand narrative, he realizes that the revolution can no longer be his. It, in other words, the revolution can't be monstrous if it's to be successful. Hence, a monster can't decide whether parliament is blown up or not. A monster can't decide who's going to rule in the new world order. It must be Evie. It must be someone that he trusts. Well, and the revolution can't belong to any one person, too. Uh, and he's been hoarding it. He has been keeping it so close to his chest He's been so unilateral in the decisions that are made up until this point, and he realizes that it actually has to belong to everybody. Everybody has to wear a V-mask, and everybody has to be on board to pull that trigger. It can't just be one man who is so deeply motivated by the harm that was done to him personally. But I do think that there is a balance that is struck. So I don't think that uh, you know personal relationships to... Uh, pain or to politics are a problem here. I think that there is uh, something very, very beautiful that's reached, especially in the character of Evie, where she recognizes uh, that you can't hold an idea 
that you can't kiss an idea, that you can't touch an idea. Um, she is a character who's able to strike this balance where she's spurred to uh, truly be the one to, to lead this revolution because she's had this intimate relationship with a person, uh, because her family was part of this revolution, because she has lost things, because she has read Valerie's story, and because Valerie reached out to her across time and said, I may never know you, but I love you. Uh, that personal connection to a cause is key in order to allow you to connect to it deeply. So it takes, you know, a little girl being gunned down in the streets for people to get off their couches and riot against the cops. It takes Finch uh, actually feeling the deaths of nearly 100,000 people to realize that he has to rebel against the government he's been complicit in. I think there's definitely this kind of middle road between the uh, personal relationship and the universal revolution that has to be struck here in the end for a successful revolution. Would you mind if I pivoted the conversation to another um, scene that I really wanted to talk about? Yeah. It happens like right in the middle. And that's the scene where Evie presumably gets captured by the government. She gets her hair shaved. She gets waterboarded. She gets, looks like showered with chemicals that burn her flesh. She gets fed like cornmeal with rats and in this, the government is presumably torturing her, trying to get her to give information about V. You talked about the character Valerie. This is the piece of toilet paper where this character Valerie wrote on in a similar government institution who ultimately died in that institution. And it's a very hopeful message of trying to spread love to anyone before you die. And it turns out that V was the one that captured her that he faked this entire installation and was torturing Evie in a way to try to help purge her of her fear, to which he is successful. Evie faces her own death and decides that she would rather die than give any information to the government about V, and she does so calmly and confidently, and then V says, you've, you've conquered your fear and lets her out, and one of the most emotional moments of the movie where she has a near panic attack in the shadow gallery and has to go to the roof where it's raining, where she says God is in the rain, which Valerie says, and she holds out her arms in the air as the rain is coming down on her. It's beautiful. It's yeah. This is where she confronts V as truly being a monster. She leaves V completely on his own and becomes a different person based off of this simulated, tortured, near-death, no, actual tortured, simulated, near-death experience. Yeah. And I really wanted to talk about it on a few different layers. Um, you know, one is the philosophical layer that's happening there, but I want to, like, shelve that. Like, how do you just ultimately feel about this scene? So I'm glad you brought this up. Um, you know, something we didn't really get to in our Watchmen episode, but we definitely talked about the first time we did an Alan Moore adaptation, and that was with The Killing Joke, is that um, the women characters in his graphic novels, uh, you know, almost 
always are subjected to some form of abuse. Usually that is of a sexual nature. And that does, there is an attempted rape um, of Evie that happens in the beginning of this movie. But this is an extended sequence of abuse uh, and torture that the woman character is put through. And it's hard. It's really, really hard to watch, especially in 2019, and especially knowing the artist's body of work. Um, I don't ever enjoy, you know, seeing women endure abuse on screen. It's really, really difficult. Um, I have a complicated relationship to this sequence, and so does Evie. And I think um, that the character articulates things so beautifully once she comes out of it. I think she is, her anger and her righteousness is so pure. And I think, uh, you know, I, I align so deeply with what she says to V that you, that she, tor she was tortured by him, that he's a monster, that this was not worth uh, the result that was achieved, that it's the thing that drives her away, even though they have forged this very deep connection. Um, yeah, I, I mean, it's something I struggle with uh, because I love the movie and I love both of the characters. I think it, it serves to drive home the ambiguity of uh, V's morality and helps to flesh out um, his arc a little bit more as a redemption rather than you know him being just a hero from the beginning. But I, I have a complicated relationship to it. Yeah, it's almost like the question of if you could make someone a better version of themselves... But all you had to do to get them there was to torture them for a few weeks and starve them and have them living in a cold cell where they have nothing but a rimless toilet and concrete to comfort them. If you could make them a better person, but all you had to do was to do that, is it okay to do that to them? And I think... The obvious moral answer to that is fuck no. No. <laughs> yeah. And, and this know, is like, also like, we haven't even mentioned this at this point, but it has to be said, this came out in 2005, 2006. So this is all very much in response to the Patriot Act, to the war in Iraq, to post 9-11 America. And so there are images in that sequence that deeply uh, echo things that we had been seeing on screen with images that were coming out of Guantanamo Bay. Uh, so it, it's it's visceral and it's very scary. Well, I th so I, I'm glad that you brought that up because there's another layer. One, just the general like, wow, this is really uncomfortable to watch and, and terrible. And this character who is an awesome character goes through this. But you can't deny the fact that Evie after it does get her yeah. fear finally purged through this experience. Yeah. You know, and it, it sucks that she has no agency. It sucks that it is forced upon her. It sucks that she gets fucking tortured. But at the end, V does purge her fear so much so that she is confident enough walking back into the den of her kidnapper and torture her and looking the torturer in the eye and thanking them. You know, yeah. like, so there's something to be said that the character chooses to do that. Right, that there is some level of good that comes out of that, not defending it in any way, shape, yeah, or form. Yeah, I, I totally understand. Yeah. But to bring up the 9-11, so the the purpose why V does this to Evie and why this occurs to her, he simulates the experience that he went through, that Valerie went through, that Evie's parents went through, that hundreds of thousands of other people had gone through, that the government is currently doing to people 
in a way to forge empathy with what he has gone through in a way to say, this is what it's like. In other words, he's trying to teach her the truth of the experience of imprisonment and torture, that there is a truth to that. So he imprisons and tortures her to teach her this. One of the themes in this movie is how artists use lies to tell the truth where politician use lies to cover up the truth. So there's this weird interplay between, in some instances, it's okay to lie. In other words, if your lie is artistic and helps you lead one to a truth, then it is okay to do it. Whether if your lie leads to your own power and covering up of that, like a fundamental truth, it's not okay to do it. And I think this is still the tentpole between V and Suttler's different philosophies. Yeah. To V, the universe, though like God, has no coincidence and doesn't play in chance, has an inherent subjective quality to it, meaning that it is a little bit of the eye of the beholder. If the universe is subjective in its nature, it means that there is a thing called a table. That table doesn't really exist until someone perceives it and says it's a table. Without there being a subjective experience of the universe, perceiving the universe, it isn't really there. And anytime we perceive a thing like a table, our own subjective preconceived notions of a table will color how we see every table going forward. So to V, there's very much a God and that there is nothing random in God's game. However, within that, there are individuals with free will with subjective experience and V teaches a subjective experience to Evie being like, this objectively happened to me, but I'm going to subjectively treat, um, push you through this so that we can come to the same conclusion, the government's evil. And when he describes what he did to Evie, first he admits, yes, I am a monster. I see all of the things in me that I see in you. However, you were so strong, I couldn't stop. Because you were doing so well, I had to keep going forward. And then when he says, they tortured you, they asked for information. In, in sense, and in essence, I don't think he's p- passing the blame to this mystical they. I think he's saying to you, that was the government. And this is what the government does. And you actually stood up to the government subjectively, even though that wasn't objectively true. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Conversely, on Suttler's side, there is an objective reality and truth, and that is that Suttler is the best thing that is and for England. And he'll tell whatever lie, he'll hurt whoever he has to, to preserve, to preserve that. And that there's an objective quality to England, and that is that Suttler is the best thing for it. He must use his authority by force, and anything that at all cracks the foundations of his government control means that it's cracking the very foundation of England itself and must be destroyed. England prevails. Strength through faith, unity through fear. I fucked it up. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a God-fearing Englishman and I'm goddamn proud. But anyway, do those two philosophical temples, do they make sense? Yeah, I, I think so. And yeah. so I think that is the sort of philosophical argument happening in that. I think it's tough watching that argument happening with torture, knowing that at this very time, 
that this happened, in particular, America was engaging in what they called enhanced interrogation tactics. Now, a lot of people debate whether that is torture or not, but in reality, when you're simulating the effect of drowning someone through waterboarding, you're fucking torturing That's them. That's torture, yeah. Right? While America was torturing people in that moment and imprisoning people without due process in a place called Guantanamo Bay, that this movie is trying to show us, hey, this is what this was like, is like, and would be like. And because we are with the character Evie through it, we hopefully walk out of that saying, wow, that's fucked up. No one, no matter what their crime, should have to endure that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, the the very special thing that comes out of that experience, though, uh, is the moment when Evie tries to give back the roll of toilet paper to V and say, well, knowing this is a lie, I should probably give this back to you. And V, uh, you know, admits that that was real. That was the real part of the simulation that he just put her through and reveals that he has this shrine to Valerie and still grows these roses in honor of her because even though they only shared a wall, even though they never saw each other's faces, they were never together. Uh, they forged this connection of love for one another uh, that was just about you know, being a fellow human being. It wasn't about you know, sharing any particular trait or characteristic. It wasn't about even a shared situation. It was about whoever you are, I recognize your personhood and I love you. And that message, I think, is really strong, especially when we see where this movie ends up, that final moment of the unmasking of all of these people. We see Valerie and Ruth in the crowd. We see Gordon in the crowd. We see the little girl in the crowd. We see that everyone wearing this mask uh, is united by at least their personhood. I love that. And I do think... The, the ultimate lesson I take out of this is that if you have a thing called the state and you can't avoid it, and the state will fundamentally always infringe on individual liberties because that's what the state does, it should at the very least be promoting universal human rights. Yeah. And once it stops to do that, the line between that and Adam Sutler is pretty thin. Yeah. And it's pretty quick to get to Adam Sutler's. And then conversely, if you want to fight back against these things, if you want to stop these things, there are plenty of things that we can do before we need to blow up buildings. Yeah. <laughs> because I don't think blowing up buildings is okay ever. No. Agreed. Unless it's really structurally unsound. And, and you're, you know, de you're demolishing <laughs> it for, no, you know. I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. So what else you got here? Uh, just before we wrap up, a couple of things I want to throw out there. Obviously, in this kind of fascinating version of life uh, imitating art, uh, in the past few years, we have seen the Guy Fox mask from V for Vendetta become a symbol and a rallying cry for protest movements and activist groups across the world. More, most specifically, it has become the symbol for the group Anonymous, the hacktivist group who... Uh, you know, hack into governments and institutions and corporations or protest the Scientologist church wearing Guy Fox masks. Um, but we were just watching a news story this morning about protests in Hong Kong, and there were people uh, wearing Guy Fox masks at that protest. And so it's a really interesting thing to see how this movie has, uh, you know, formed this kind of real core of people who perceive that symbol 
as anti-authoritarian, but ultimately about uh, freedom and uh, you know a better world for for better or worse. And you know, as we get to you know, remember, remember the fifth of November in America. The fifth of November is also when we have elections. Yep. And we absolutely have power and authority over who will lead us. And we must take that power and authority sacred because there will invariably always be those who come along as demagogues and authoritarians who say, just give me that power and I'll take care of everything for you and you'll be okay. The person that wants that should always be scrutinized, should always, should always be skeptical of, and we should never willingly hand that over because we can't take it for granted that we'll always have 5ths of November where we can have elections. So on the 5th of November this year, if you are in the United States, definitely get out there and vote, whether it's a local or state election on your level. Uh, if you don't know where your polling place is, there are a lot of ways to find it out. But my favorite way to find out your polling place is to go to yourfuckingpollingplace.com to find <laughs> out where's my fucking polling place. I love it. Um, and make sure that you uh, get out there and cast your ballot to make a difference. Fuck yeah, and fuck the fascists. Until next time, guys, be kind. Remember, remember. Remember.